Welcome to this episode of Security Market Watch, the show that goes straight to the source for market insights and analysis. Today, Maggie Dillon and I are here with Jack Ben Simon once again. If you remember from our uh, show with Jack, Jack is the regulatory. What 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 are you, Jack? You're are you a jack of all trades? <laughs> no, we're definitely not a jack of all trades. We're very narrowly focused on securities regulatory compliance, and in particular, securities law, privacy law, and anti money laundering compliance. So those are the three main areas. Uh, focusing on financial regulations, so financial entities, and recently, healthcare, health tech companies. Check out that episode with Jack Ben Simon. I think it was two or three episodes ago. We can put it in the show notes in the description. Check it out. Maggie, how are you doing? Living the dream. It's always great when we have reoccurring guests on. And I know today we're going to focus a little bit on some very particular areas. So let's jump right into it. And the first thing that I thought of when we were talking prior to hitting record, we were talking about disaster recovery planning. And there's a lot of things that are going on in the world. First thing that I thought of was the issue of what's going on with Hawaii, for instance. Uh, you know, they've had one of their islands has taken a massive hit. There are a lot of resources being pumped out. This is obviously a state of the United States. It's not necessarily going to be another country. So I wanted to walk through this with you. Uh, you've been in this industry for many years. In this instance, if we're looking at bridging uh, cyber and the financial implications from a disaster recovery plan, what advice would you give? What have you seen in this? And this is just an example. If there's other, other examples you want to bring up. What would you kind of advise people with these types of situations? So I'd start with a very high level. I'd start with the 50,000-foot level, which is to have what's called a disaster recovery plan, a disaster recovery manual, if you will. That includes a series of controls that could be automated versus manual controls as to how you're going to deal with these types of disasters. They can range in anything from, you know, current Hurricane Adalia to earthquakes to uh, floods to all kinds of other potential disasters where your internal mechanism, something as simple as gaining access to data, getting access to client information, uh, or even potentially calling a colleague or getting on a Zoom call with your colleague is going to be compromised. So what the DRP manual does essentially is it acts and serves as a control mechanism as to if and when this happens. We all know that at some point it's going to happen, right? Whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a natural disaster or whatever the case is, the actuarial studies are very clear. It's going to happen at some point. And depending on where the jurisdiction is. So you should have preparation plan. And that's what the disaster recovery plan is effectively. So at a high level, it's a manual that depending on your industry vertical. So for example, if you're in financial services, let's say you're a broker dealer or you are an asset manager. One of the key things you want to make absolutely sure of is that there's going to be ongoing continuing operation of your business during this kind of a disaster. And so how is that going to take place? So you want to make sure that whether you have software mechanisms or you have certain hardware mechanisms, where are you storing your information? Is it in the cloud or is it on Amazon or, or elsewhere? Um, how is that taking place? And then within that, another component we should probably talk about is insurance. What kind of insurance do you have to make sure that if, if and when this happens um, and there are losses potentially that those losses are properly covered for? And then, of course, there's the other piece, which is cybersecurity, which is a natural piece here, which is during a disaster like this, given that there, there may not be the best electricity, there may not be the best, you know, wire formations, et cetera, how are you protecting the integrity of your data 
within the existing cybersecurity mechanisms that you have. And so that component, that cybersecurity component alone should be intricately, intricately embedded into the disaster recovery planning. And that's going to depend on the scope of your cybersecurity protective mechanisms. That's going to depend on your vendor outsourcer. You may have one or two or three different cybersecurity outsource companies. It really depends on the scope of that cybersecurity operation and the scope of your risk exposures. So as part of the DRP, what's really important is the risk assessment. So what comes out of that risk assessment is what are your key risk exposures when there is a disaster? How are those risks being properly mitigated and remediated? Who's responsible for what and where? And this is all diagrammatically documented in the DRP. So, you know, if, if Maggie Dillon was the, uh, you know, chief cybersecurity officer, what are her responsibilities along the pendulum during a disaster? Uh, what are Josh's responsibilities if he was the CEO of the company, right? So, so there's clearly delineated roles and responsibilities with with contact numbers, et cetera. All this should be clearly laid out in the DRP because the last thing you want are surprises. Surprises add to risk, they add to uncertainty, and they also add to ancillary costs. Uh, and they also don't give a lot of comfort to insurance companies. So the other thing what an insurance company will ask for is they'll ask for, do you have a disaster recovery planning manual? And so they will look at the manual and they will see how it's laid out. Do they have the proper controls? Do they have the proper accountabilities? Do they have the org charts in there? And by the way, just as a side note, they'll also look at BCP, which I know is not really in focus here, which is the business continuity plan, which is how is the business going to continue during the formation of a disaster? Because we don't, sometimes we don't know how long this disaster is going to take. It could take 10 days. It could take 20 days. It could take 40 days. We really don't know. So we have to plan for those contingencies. So let's start with who's the author of this kind of a manual. Um, and typically this manual is started by, I would say, in some way, compliance. It, it works with legal. It works with cybersecurity personnel. It works with IT personnel. Uh, and certainly with management in terms of delineating who's responsible for what, when, and where, and how, and how things are going to be carried out. And also within that is an emergency response plan. So... Let me explain that. It doesn't necessarily mean like a hurricane. It could be something like if we take the example of Equifax a number of years ago, Equifax had a major data security leak. And there were many, many individual accounts that were affected. These were, you know, people who had entrusted Equifax with very sensitive financial information, credit risk ranking information, et cetera. And there was a major data leakage and a result. I believe that was a hack into their system, very serious hack. So they then had to task their emergency response team, which probably includes in some ways a, an outsourced PR firm or in the case of Equifax because of its size, an investor relations firm. And they then have to deal with this disaster, right? So it's not a natural disaster. It's more like a PR disaster because it was a major data privacy leak and breach. So then they get tasked in terms of when do they roll out a press release? How do they plan how to deal with the public and communicate with the public? At what point do they engage their auditors, depending on the materiality threshold? At what point do they engage legal counsel to make sure that everything is properly worded and phrased and, and the proper language is there in, in succinct, plain language so that the average John Q public, when it goes out into the public, understands what's taking place, the impact on their account, if any, and the short and long-term implications for shareholders. So all of this can be embedded, should be embedded in a disaster recovery plan because it only includes 
the natural physical disasters that includes other disasters, which are, as I say, hacks into their systems, which can often be a result of insufficient cybersecurity protection, insufficient cybersecurity controls, and, and in some ways, you know, obviously gaps in vulnerabilities in their mm-hmm. systems where that data could have been accessed to. I want to focus on something that you said that I really want to hone in on here. If we're looking at more small to medium-sized companies, and for instance, they're involved in in a disaster like this, Equifax, obviously I would expect them to have backup firms, these types of things with a company that large. Is it common practice, and this might sound like a silly question, but I feel like a lot of people would ask this, especially small to medium-sized business owners. In cybersecurity, should it be, in your opinion, common to add a second backup cybersecurity company should things completely fail uh, and work that into a disaster recovery plan. Obviously, bringing in outside vendors and and who covers what duties from a project management standpoint, but that almost feels like it should be standard practice, and I feel like it isn't. Am I accurate in saying that, or could you give us a little bit? It's it's very good business practice. That is, they're very good business practice. I don't believe it's standard practice from from our experience. It is very useful to have a a second party or even a third party, but backup cybersecurity expertise. Because the reality is that companies who blend their IT and cybersecurity rolled in one uh, often can miss the mark. And there are many, many blind spots that they're going to miss. And so by having a third party outsourced firm, they're less likely to incur that margin of error. And the reality is also that when there are things happening internally within the company, there's it's focused strictly on the dynamics within the company. But if it's outsourced to a third-party vendor, they're not likely to be in the same jurisdiction. They're not likely to be affected by the same hurricane and the, you know similar disasters. So we have risk diversification. And so that company is still probably at some level able to monitor where your gaps are, your vulnerabilities, even while this whole disaster is taking place. So that's another advantage, decided advantage is that you have diversification of jurisdiction, diversification by state, and diversification by even these specific risk factors, you know, disaster, the likelihood of a disaster affecting four or five, six states at the same time is pretty remote, right? So, so you have that. Um, so the short and long answer to your question is, is that in our experience, we do not see that as standard practice. We do see that as a business practice, as adding that in. And often, in terms of a cost mechanism, there are efficiencies that can be shored up. Instead of having that internally, because you know, we've dis- we discussed this before in the previous show, that IT security and cybersecurity are not the same. And they're very different functions. They, they really should be bifurcated. And I know we talked about the corporate governance piece and finding board members, that, but this all comes back to corporate governance at some level, and that is that the board is ultimately on the hook when these things happen. And so if you don't have these mechanisms in place, like a DRP, like a third-party cybersecurity vendor that can mitigate the risk and provide effective and efficient remediation during a disaster, which is really important, that the timing of the remediation is often can be more important than the absolute remediation, because you can have a perfect plan, but it it can only get executed four months from now. Well, that's not going to really help much if you're dealing with multiple stakeholders now. You may be dealing with shareholders if it's a public company. You may be dealing with credit, you know, agencies, credit agencies. You may be dealing with government agencies, regulatory agencies, um, potentially agencies that deal with privacy breaches uh, or, or AML breaches or otherwise. Right? But at, at the end of the day, you're dealing with sensitive of private, sensitive customer data relating to know your customer information and 
you know, in the case of Equifax, I mean, that is that is your golden nugget. I mean, at the end of the day, you're entrusted with that information and you're in the data business at the end of the day. If you're in Equifax, you are in the data business. And if your crown jewel is being compromised, you want to make sure you have those controls in place, not just the backup, but perhaps the secondary and tertiary to make sure that those level of risk exposures are covered, especially given the scope and size of a company like Equifax. And at the end of the day, there's really only two providers in that space. They pretty much monopolize the space. I believe those two control about 80% of the market. Quick question. Only because I, I, I'm a little bit, um, I'm, I'm a little ditzy after work. So quick, when you say a backup security company, or are we talking about a backup MSSP or MSP, MSSP, managed service providers, are we talking about backup lawyers? What? No, no. So let me clarify that. That's a good point. I'm, I'm really referring to more of an MSP. I'm talking about a third-party vendor that is completely extricated from the company. It's not. It's a, it really is a vendor. They're not employees. They're completely external and independent, and they are tasked to monitor the risks on a you know ongoing, weekly, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, etc. So that when a disaster takes place, they're presumably removed from that state, ideally several states removed. And so they then can take on responsibilities to start mitigating, identifying what those risks are so that there's further prevention of more damages. Because one of the things, if, if this ever went to court, for example, if there were shareholders or an agency or clients, for example, or, or groups of entities that were going to sue the company for negligence, one of the things as, as, a, as a test the courts would look at is once you identify there was bleeding, what did you take to further prevent further bleeding, right, to, to, to stop additional bleeding? And if the answer is, well, it took us two months to get things in order, and then we did this, that, and the other, that's not, that's not going to work very favorably. But if you had an emergency response pad and you had a, a second-tier vendor and potentially even a third-tier cybersecurity vendor, they then can see that you already had these measures in place before it took place. And so when it took place, you had professionals on board to manage those risks in a way that they deemed to be uh, the most efficient and most, I would say, proficient and making sure that the bleeding is stopped. So, you know, what, what we're trying to say here is that courts do not have a standard of perfection. They don't expect companies, just generally speaking, from a corporate law perspective, to have perfect controls, perfect standards, and to behave in ways that resemble a perfect entity. They have a standard of reasonableness. And so what that means is that so long as the company is seen, especially the board, is seen to take reasonable measures before, during, and after a disaster, those are the more, most important components that go into you know, uh, assessing damages, assessing the negligence, assessing who's at fault for this, that, and the other. So those are the th key things that those courts are going to be looking at. I'm curious, at what point do companies have to, um, at what point does the legal system really start to take over? Because I, I'm thinking there are some companies who might, you know, experience a breach and the court system can't tackle everybody that's experiencing a breach all at the same time. So is it uh, is it delineated by 
by uh, vertical, by sector. There are certain sectors that get in trouble a lot faster. Is there, or is it uh, the size of the company? Small companies slip through the cracks. You know, because if I'm a small business and I'm listening to this, the next thing I'm going to think is, does this affect me? Am I going to need a Jack Ben Simon in my uh, corner of the ring in case I get in case I get breached? So if you can give us a yeah, little no, bit, that, that's a fair that's a fair question. So a couple things. One is the courts are always a last mechanism. They're always a last. Like if you can't settle this out of court, if you can't settle this in arbitration or mediation, or at least through through talking to the senior management and the board, it's a last resort. It's a very expensive resort. It's drawn out. Uh, it can affect the brand. It has, you know, very, very severe implications. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this tends to be more sensitive in areas like the financial industry. So, for example, if you're a bank, if you're a broker-dealer, if you are an asset manager or even a payment processor, like in the money service business or money transmit relations, because you're dealing with very sensitive information and that is your game. Those are your key crown jewels. So to, to answer your question about personal liability, I think it's a very, very fair question because in the in the securities industry, if you are the chief compliance officer of an asset manager, let's say a registered investment advisor with the SEC or a FINRA broker-dealer under the FINRA regime, then if you're a chief compliance officer, there are cases where, depending on the extent of what took place and the exposures, you can be personally liable. Now, Again, there are various litmus tests that a regulator would look at. And one of the things they would look at is, did you have controls in place, the proper controls in place, so that when something like this takes place, a disaster, that you guys are ready to roll out, implement, and, and execute the DRP? If the answer is no, then you have a higher level of liability. Then, then the regulators are not that kind, or soft, I should say, in terms of not imposing penalties. Same thing with the CEO of, of a FINRA broker dealer or of a registered investment advisor. They actually sign attestation forms annually that they, that they agree and adhere and they believe that all the controls are in place. It's an annual attestation that a CEO and a CCO signs typically once a year, a minimum. So to answer your question, yes, there can be that personal liability both to the CEO and the CCO if the regulators deem that that the standard of reasonableness was breached, not the standard of perfection, the standard of reasonableness, okay, which is to say they did not take reasonable measures. And even when it took place, they didn't take the reasonable measures as far as hiring further expertise, hiring a disaster recovery plan team or an emergency response team, etc. So if there is personal liability, it, it often can be significant. I mean, I've seen cases where the SEC just recently, actually, a very, very recent case, there was a CCO that worked for a bank, and there were a number of very material anti-money laundering breaches. And they felt that this CCO was uh, was pers- was responsible. In other words, they didn't have the, the controls in place. And she was fined several million dollars for these, uh, essentially, personally, okay? Now, she ended up hiring a law firm to defend the claims, to defend the securities regulators. That alone is going to cost at least a million, a million and a half. Um, and, you know, here's the challenge. Anytime you try to to litigate against a regulator, you're up against some major disadvantages, the most important being time, because the regulator has all the time in the world. You don't as, as, a, as a defendant, right? Or what, sorry, as a plaintiff. 
in that case, what triggered the I'm not using the, the correct legal terms here, I'm, I'm sure. But what triggered the litigation? Is, was it a customer that said, hey, you know, I want well, to press there were a number of things. There, there were, I think what happened was the regulator came in. They realized that they had very weak AML controls, anti-money laundering controls. And so the first question is, how did we get here? Was it as a result of the previous incumbent, the current incumbent? Was this something that was systematic within the company? The, the tone started at the top and then percolate downwards. How did we get here, right? So they look at the journey. They look at the sort of the last four, five, six, seven years. And then they look at this person who's the CCO and say, okay, since this person started, what did they do to implement AML controls that would have been reasonably expected of this person's role as a CCO? And so, you know, again, industry standards, regulators have certain expectations as to what they would expect the company to have, et cetera. So it's the top person in the compliance area, the CCO, that is going to, in this case, they're, they're more that responsibility. And they came to the conclusion that it was this individual's locus or nexus of obligations to get that work done. And it wasn't done, not even at a level that would have been satisfactory. So now they're going to spend a couple of years in the courts. Obviously, there's, you know, a reputational impact for that individual. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that there's personal potential liability for the CEO in the financial industry, particularly for asset managers and broker dealers, as well as for the CCO. I have not seen that liability in other industry verticals like healthcare, like health tech, uh, or, or even in the MSB in the money service business. I have, I have not seen that. And one of the main reasons I believe is because they are not signing personal attestations that are required in the securities industry. Wow. Right? So they, they, you have to sign that attestation. Remember the days of Sarbanes-Oxley? This was after Enron, and we had those frauds. Well, what came out of that from Sarbanes-Oxley was that the CEO and the CFO, still to this day as a public company, you have to personally attest to all the financial controls are in order. And if you attest, if you sign that attestation and it turns out there's a financial fraud, embezzlement or otherwise, you're on the hook. Yep, you're going right? down. So you're you're going down with with the flames, and so that's another reason why it's we talked about the last session. It's it's becoming more difficult to find directors on boards who are okay with taking on this kind of liability. Now they're not signing attestation forms at, per se, but it just goes to to extend the point of when you're in certain industry verticals like financial services that are so highly regulated. They are now requiring these people to sign these attestation forms, particularly public companies. For every public company under the Sarbanes-Oxley, you have to sign this attestation form. And if you don't, they follow up on it and, you know, they get suspicious and they conduct their own investigation. But you're on the hook. I have a question. So let's say we have a huge project that's being implemented and we're talking to high level project coordinators, program managers, things of this nature. They're reporting budgets, financial uh, projections, things of this that could obviously go up to a CCO that's going to be signing these attestation forms. What are they doing on the little guy end of these project managers who are, are putting these financials together? Are they held liable? Is there any type of typical standard process companies should be doing for that type of situation? So what I've seen is, look, it would have to be egregious. I mean, really, obviously egregious for, uh, we'll say, a non-executive mid-manager or, or, or lower-level manager to uh, be in the nexus of liability. 
because the courts and the regulators believe that it's the senior executives who take on the risk. They they obviously are compensated with higher pay and options, whatever else. It's the senior executives and management's responsibility to handle that. And obviously they're relying on the integrity of information coming from other managers, et cetera. But that is their responsibility. That is the executive's responsibility. So uh, I have not seen, I've seen very, very little liability. As I said, unless it's egregious and it's obvious embezzlement and outright fraud, and it would have to be egregious, but it's mainly coming, it's mainly leveled against the executives and it's the CFO the CEO, C, sorry, CFO, CEO, and in financial services, the CCO and the CEO. But for public companies, and this is another thing, you know, when you're a CFO of a publicly traded company, you take on a fair amount of liability. You're, you're relying on all these people in finance to essentially making sure that the integrity of information is what it is. And if it's not, you know, you, you have a lot of potential personal liability. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have a team of 20 and you know, there's three or four rogue players and you took reasonable steps to look into the behavior and actions of those three or four rogue players. And despite all that, you were still given bad information and hence the financials were affected. Again, the courts are going to look at that, right? Because you took reasonable measures yourself. So again, there isn't a standard of perfection, but it's unlikely uh, from what I've seen, at least from the SEC's perspective, that they're going to level the fines against the mid-level managers, et cetera. Uh, it's really, it's the executives. Jack, Ben, Simon, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I know you got to run, so we'll wrap it up there. And Maggie, anything, any last, you know, 10-second thoughts? Sure. I just, I'm really glad that we have you on the show because you talk about things I don't normally hear about just through the news or these are the types of, of meat and potatoes that we really need to, to bring out to the public because these are questions I would never have even thought of if I hadn't even had been a part of this. So thank you very much. Hopefully other people connected with it. We're, we're happy to drop on our experience and really just explain it in simple, plain language, like a fireside chat, which is what we're having. How, now. Can, how can people find you? Uh, they can find us, uh, Jay Ben Simon at blackswandiagnostics.com or our website is blackswandiagnostics.com. Maggie, how can people find you? LinkedIn. Also, come follow us on YouTube, which is under Security Market Watch for our podcast. Same under the newsletter on LinkedIn and also Instagram. You'll find us. We are everywhere where we you find trying. your podcast. We're on the moon. If you can't yeah. find us, it's your fault because we're out there. <laughs> I'm Josh Bruning. Thanks for Bye watching. Sure. Thanks for listening. Thank you.